0: Uh, I'm going to actually take a seat this morning for today's sermon. Uh, uh, sore throat, fever, uh, etc. So, i uh, considered kind of calling it a, a morning this morning, but I'm very excited to share with you. I didn't want you guys to miss this amazing story from God's Word. So, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to try to soldier on as best as possible. Uh, forgive me if I sound kind of monotone at times, but uh, I'm just going to trust God will, will use me uh, in my weakness so, uh, our family uh, just celebrated American Thanksgiving, which means for us the Christmas tree is going to go up soon and uh, it is fair game for Christmas music going forward. Uh, we have an unofficial start date of Thanksgiving where you're allowed to play any kind of Christmas music you want in the O'Sheliger household. Next, next Sunday is uh, Cayman Thanksgiving, we're um, excited about that as well as the first day of the Advent season, as we think about and prepare for for Christ's coming and thinking about his birth as well. That means it's the holiday season. Uh, That means it's a time when something happens for the vast majority of us. Specifically, everything in our lives seems to get heightened. What I mean by that is celebrations get heightened in our lives, gratefulness gets heightened in our lives, all those good things, right? Joy gets heightened in our lives. Katie will tell you, that uh, even as I put up a Christmas ornament on the tree, I will start to tear up and cry as I look at ornaments from my childhood, from the kids' childhood. Like, I just get, my sensitivity gets so heightened this time of year. I I love it. Uh, So, too, do hurts get heightened, though. Perceived slights, passive-aggressive comments, long-time conflicts, loneliness gets heightened as well especially as it's a time of comparing what we lack to what others have. Tis the season, right? Tis the season where emotions tend to get triggered more quickly and with more volatility. So I think it's a good season for us also during the Advent season to talk about care. What I mean is is one another care, uh, care from church leaders we call elders, but also we'll start this morning talking about God's care. That's what I do today. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings is wedged between Samuel and Chronicles. 1 Kings 19, where in just one chapter, God gives us a really amazing, it's pretty amazing, a complete program, a kind of comprehensive theology of his care for his people. And... This comprehensive care plan of God's isn't, isn't communicated through sort of tidy bullet points or does it come in a brochure with full-color photos. Uh, rather, it comes through a story. Uh, the, the comprehensive care we receive from God has a, a very real context, a particular time and a particular place, and especially it happens to a very particular person. Have you ever known someone who who really surprises you with how down or despondent they are. What I mean is is you you, you know this person and they seem really down and, and just them in particular being down really catches you off guard because they're people who seem to have it all together personally. Number one. Number two, they seem to have a lot going for them in their lives. And you wonder when you look at their lives how can you be so down? How can you be so despondent? Based on who you are, everything you have going for you, how can you complain? Well, we're going to see someone this morning who seems to have it together personally, has everything going for him. It's a prophet by the name Elijah. This is the context of his life, the context of the story we're about to read. Uh, this prophet, Elijah, he has always stood before the Lord. Before we get to chapter 19 of, of, of 1 Kings, we would read back in 17, verse 1, The Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Chapter 18, verse 15, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. This simply just means that Elijah stood before God without any kind of duplicity in his heart, unashamed, ready to hear what God has to say and communicate it to others faithfully. That's just who he was. Stood before God. There's no duplicity there. I want to hear God what you have to say. Communicate it with others. He was a man who had it together personally. He's also a man who's got a lot going for him. And to be fair, at this time, when Elijah is ministering to God's people in Israel, there's a lot of evil. Mostly because of, of kings who have ruled God's people harshly, who've turned from their God to a false Canaanite god named Baal. A false god, Baal, who's all about sensuality and self-indulgence. And that's the context in which Elijah is ministering to his people. And yet, at Elijah's command, a widow is supernaturally fed. At his command, that widow's son is raised from the dead. In chapter 18, Elijah, one of the great stories in the Old Testament, he confronts the prophets of Baal. He gathers them all together, and they wage a kind of God battle. All right, and the, the rules of the God battle are pretty simple. Whichever God brings fire down from heaven, that is the real God. All right, so it's a pretty, pretty simple rule, right? Pretty simple goal. Yahweh wins this battle in spectacular fashion. People fall on their faces, face down, declaring, Yahweh, you are the real God. You are really God. And these people even help kill all the false prophets. It seems like they eradicate evil completely from Israel. So it's wonderful. A lot of momentum is on this man's side. And so we're surprised on the heels of this that all it takes is the threat of one woman to send Elijah into a despondent tailspin, a depressed tailspin. So that's what we... No, as we start to read in uh, verse 1 of 1 Kings 19. Read this with me if you would. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, that's King Ahab of Israel, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, because he'd done much, and how he had killed all the prophets, false prophets, that is, with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a, a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, he gives him a death threat. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came, and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life for I am no better than my fathers. God proved himself miraculously faithful. The false prophets are no more. And when you read Elijah's story then, his his depression, his despondency doesn't make sense to us. He's the kind of person we would meet and say, really? You're feeling down? You're feeling depressed? Look at what God has done through you, man. And yet, his depression, his despondency is nonetheless real. In fact, that might be you this morning. You, you probably can't even see how much you have going for you in your life. You can't see it. Others can. Others can point it out and say, I can't believe you're feeling down. I can't believe you're feeling in a, in a kind of emotional or spiritual valley in your life. Because normally we can't see it ourselves. Elijah would never have seen it. All he could do is compare himself to others, doesn't he here? He compares himself to others and says, man, I'm not like them. I'm just not like them. And he crawls into a hole. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to identify the particular movement of God's care in your life that we're going to see in Elijah's life. To look outside yourself and see how might God be caring for me even though I feel down. If this isn't you, maybe it has been you before. And you can rejoice at what God has done in your life and His care for you, or you know someone in your life who's down. Surely you do, and you you can help them identify ways that God is caring for them. Care. We might even learn how to care for others ourselves by looking at God's example. So we see God exercise towards Elijah four particular and well-timed movements of care that lift Elijah from his funk. He gives provision, pursuit, mission, and finally a partner. And it might help to think about the way God cares for Elijah, and in many ways for us, in terms of a valley. we're down in a valley, we're despondent. God knows this. He cares for us accordingly. And as we move out of our funk, as we move out of our depression, out of our despondency, God cares for us in different ways, ways in which we can handle. He knows what we can handle. He knows what we need, even before we ask him. In fact, he knows that we need one movement at a time before we even know what's going on with ourselves. So first, one of the ways God cares is he cares through basic provision. He cares through provision. Basic but absolute necessities. So let's continue in this story of Elijah here, starting in verse 5. And Elijah lay down Remember how depressed he is, right? This is enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm not even like my father's. I mean, he's comparing himself to other people. Probably no one can get a hold of Elijah. Shake him out of this despondency. So here's how God cares for him, starting in verse 5. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, And there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Lest we assume God only cares for our praying, our singing, our sharing about the good news about Jesus. In reality, God also cares for the whole person. He doesn't just care for us as sort of these spiritual beings. He doesn't just care for our souls. In fact, it's resting and eating and drinking in which God begins to care for Elijah, doesn't he? Rest, eat, drink, and then repeat. So often... It's, in fact, the the lack of personal care for our bodies where depression and despondency begins, isn't it? And I think too often we've been told in churches, many of us who've grown up in churches, God doesn't care about our bodies. He just cares for our souls. He just cares for our spirits. But he cares for the whole person, as we see here. Take, for example, sleep. Sleep deprivation has recently been declared a public Health problem by the Centers for Disease Control. It's a public health problem for us. So in the 1850s, I did a little reading on this. 1850s, people averaged about nine and a half hours of sleep. And in the 1950s, eight and a half hours of sleep. Today, less than seven hours of sleep. The National Sleep Foundation says that 49% of Americans, for example, no, we're not all Americans, but Americans love statistics, so this is why I just get it from there. Uh, Sleep Foundation says 49% of Americans suffer from some sleep related problem, half of an entire nation. And God is saying, I care for you by giving you sleep. Psalm 127 verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sleep. Hitting the pillow at your body's first signal grows your humility and trust. And some of you right now might be thinking that. Well, my body's telling me to sleep right now, Ryan. Should I go to bed? I don't know. That's up to you. I might doze off at some point during this sermon. (coughs) Hoping not. But it grows, actually. It's one of the ways God grows our humility and trust in him, isn't it? So Mark 4, 26-27, Jesus said this, The kingdom of God is like this, a man scattered seed along the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, that seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. And it's a wonderful analogy for us in life. You work, you toil, you invest in people, you want to get to that extra email at night, you might you don't want to let people down. There's more I could do. There's more I could do, so I'll just push myself so I only get about five or six hours of sleep. And, and, and God says, wait a minute. The kingdom of God is you invest, and then you sleep. And then I work. I go to work. God gives us sleep to remind us that we are not him. It is God, the psalmist tells us, who neither sleeps nor slumbers so that you can, <laughs> Right? It's a wonderful reminder every time we hit the pillow of I'm not God. People are going to be okay. My work is going to be okay. I'm not in control of all of this. Psalm 3, 5 through 6, David said this, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Listen, Listen to what he says in the next sentence. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So you think you have pressures. You think you have problems. You think you have to push yourself constantly and God is wanting to give you the gift of sleep here's David thousands of people want to kill him outside of camp I laid down and slept and I woke again for it's God who sustains me sleep is an act of trust friends it's a gift and Jesus' most profound object lesson on faith you know what his object is for that lesson sleeping sleeping on a boat in a storm What did that demonstrate to his disciples? Complete trust in his heavenly father. I'm littering us with scripture here because I think we are so programmed in our minds to feel guilty about these kinds of means of God's care. When it comes to enjoying a good meal or getting enough sleep, we rarely think of these things as a means of God's grace, of his care for us. In a rut, we're told that, well, then you need to do some spiritual discipline. Maybe I'm not, I'm not spending enough time with God, right? I'm not fellowshipping enough with other people. I'm not praying enough. I'm not getting to that church program. I'm not fasting. I'm not... Sometimes God just wants to give us sleep. Sometimes you're feeling down. You're feeling in a rut. God just wants to let, say, just receive my love for you. Sleep, child. Eat, child. Enjoy this wonderful burrito I've given you. <laughs> child. He might be wanting to love you in that way. A great burrito and a 10 p.m. bedtime. He also cares for us through pursuit. Look with me at verses 9 through 14. He rose, he goes, he gets, he, this, with the strength of that food. Notice, God, God doesn't get all holy and say, oh, with the strength of my Holy Spirit or "with the strength of my power. He just says, with the strength of food, he goes to where the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him there. He said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous. It says, may say jealous in your translation. probably should read zealous. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out. Stand before the mount, before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, broken in pieces, the ro- uh, broken pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and at the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and at the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and at the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in, in his cloak, went out, stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him, and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. They seek my life. Let's take it away. So you may have read this encounter with God, Elisha's encounter with God before. It's a very famous moment in the Bible, and perhaps like me, when you've read it, what you've taken away from that story is, well, a lot of times God doesn't speak to us through big things, through grandiose things like earth or earthquakes and, and fires and big windstorms. Sometimes he speaks in a soft whisper. The Holy Spirit sometimes nudges us, and that's how he speaks to us. But that is not primarily what this encounter with God is about. Primarily, it's about God pursues us even when we run from him. God pursues us even when we run from him. Elijah rebels, he rationalizes, he prefers lies to the truth, and even so, God still chases after him. God still loves him even in that cave. I love the description here, of he lodges himself in that cave, right? He, and God twice asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? God's inquiry what are you doing here, Elijah? It's based on verse 11, where he commanded Elijah, Elijah, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. This time, Elijah doesn't stand before the Lord. He cowers, he rebels. He goes, he takes his, his life, and he hides himself in the cave. If that sounds vaguely familiar to you, it might be because it reminds you uh, of the time God asked a hiding Adam. Adam, where are you? Well, Adam said, well, I heard you. I was naked and afraid, so I hid. And in the story of man's first rebellion, Adam goes on to rationalize, this woman you gave me, it was her. She offered me the fruit. I ate of it. And so Elijah, too, rationalizes, doesn't he? Twice rationalizes, God, I've been zealous for you. I have been so passionate for you. I've been doing stuff for you, but it's made no difference. Elijah, see guys, had hoped that God would eradicate, completely eradicate the evil amongst his people. At Mount Carmel, he called fire down from the sky, and everyone there said, Yahweh is the real God. And he even got rid, it seemed like, of all the prophets of Baal who tempted people towards evil and towards wickedness. It seemed like everything was done. Mission is accomplished. And So when another person comes forward and says, I want you dead, Elijah rationalizes, this is just too much, God. It is too much. I'm tired, I'm weary, I don't want any more of this. So he clings to these lies as if they were the truth. I, even I only, am left. How many times have we said to ourselves, maybe say to yourself, now, I'm the only one who's going through this. I'm the only one who's experienced this. It's just me. I don't know anyone. I don't have anyone. Elijah sensed that too. When down, we often hide ourselves away. So what can we remember about God's care in those moments when we hide ourselves away? Number one, God's pursuit isn't predicated on my performance. God's pursuit is not predicated on my performance. God doesn't love me. He doesn't come after me because he thinks I'm a good person. He doesn't love me and come after me because I was really obedient that day and I've been a good Christian. I mean, for Elijah... Rebellion, rationalizing, clinging to lies. This is the context in which God pursues him. I remember years and years ago, I was working with middle schoolers, and we went on this retreat together. I fancied myself a relatable guy, easy to get to know, even likable. And yet these middle schoolers, man, they just tore me up. They tore me up. I, I, I was the new guy, so they went out of their way to reject me, Treat me poorly, made me feel unwelcome. So what did I do? I hid myself. Thankfully, Katie and Mason, who was born at that time, were at the retreat with me. We had a little separate place that we slept. I went there. I just kind of hid myself. I didn't want to deal with it. And I was doubly ashamed because I was being so affected by 11 and 13-year-olds in my life. Right? Like, really? Is this happening? Like, am I hiding myself away, not wanting to be around people, feeling so despondent? Because 11 and 13-year-olds are telling me, insults or just rejecting me? Am I back in middle school? What's happening? So I rationalized myself. Well, who, who would want to deal with this? Who could deal with this? And yet I sensed all the while, God hadn't given up on me. He was knocking at the door of my heart. And you know what God used to get my attention? A basketball tournament. They said, the announced over the loudspeakers will be a basketball tournament. Such and such time on the court. Bring your students. Let's go. Well, I, I love basketball. I'm good at basketball. That got me out of my cave, ran outside, played basketball. God got the focus off myself, which leads to one other thing. We'll do well to remember about God's care. He knows exactly how to get our attention. He knows exactly how to get our attention, and it might be through the most unusual means, right? We had a mighty wind, an earthquake, a fire, and, and all these things. It's like Elijah stays in the caves knowing, I hear you, God, not coming out. I hear you, God, not coming out. I hear you, not coming out until he hears a little low whisper, <laughs> right? And, and I think Elijah comes out of the cave because he's just genuinely curious. This is not some spiritual moment where Elijah comes out saying, oh God, I know it's you. Speak to me. No, he hears a whisper. And when someone whispers, what do you do? Well, what was that? A basketball game, a whisper, whatever it might be. God cares for us in different ways. He gets our attention. He pursues us. He speaks to us in ways we might not even imagine. Number three, having gotten Elijah's attention, he cares, God cares for him by giving Elijah a mission. Read with me verses 15 through 18 as we continue this story. And the Lord said to him, all right, so we, we experience Elijah once again complaining, right? God, I'm the only one left. They're seeking my life. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. I, I just can't get out of myself. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from uh, the sword of Hazael shall put Jehu to death. And the one who escapes from the sword uh, of Jehu shall put Elijah, uh, shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that and not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God knows as part of his care plan, his comprehensive care plan for us, that there comes a time having cared for us materially and being very tender with us, having pursued us and got our attention and gotten us into his presence, he knows there comes a time where we need to be challenged to look outside ourselves and join something bigger than ourselves. I find that God moves us towards mission when we at least start responding to God and when we're just whining about our situation. Think about this here. In addition to standing before God and receiving messages to speak, a prophet's mission to set apart people to be used by God for his leadership. And so God says to Elijah, go and do your job. Go and do your mission. Stop whining. God's going to use a future king named Jehu to defeat evil and replace the wicked king Ahab which is so important to Elijah. This is something Elijah wants to be a part of. Remember how Elijah's frustration began? He thought evil was going to be eradicated. He thought it was gone. And it wasn't. He feels defeated as a result. Oh, man. God. So God responds by saying, here are three people, three people who will be part of my plan to eradicate evil. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that I have not bowed to Baal. It says in verse 18. God communicates his care through getting us on a mission, guys, because, number one, we often can't stop whining otherwise. I know this is true for myself. The only way to get the focus off myself and pitying myself is to join in something bigger than me, to get the focus off of me and onto others, the focus off of me and onto something big God has for me and for you. Another way that he communicates care through this is God doesn't require more than what he's asked you to do. The bigger mission God is doing is preserving 7,000 people who love God. That's the big mission. Does God ask Elijah to do that alone? No. He gives him three specific names of people who are going to help in that process. Elijah isn't responsible for the 7,000, God is. God calls him to just be the man to set apart those leaders. That's his role. What's yours? God's great mission for us as believers is to go and make disciples of all nations. What's your role in that? You can't actually make someone a Christian. God has to do that. So what's your role in making a disciple? Maybe your role is to assist sharing the good news about Jesus with with young children. Maybe your role is to do your job with integrity. You do your job with integrity and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And you, you wait for that moment of, of, of sharing Christ with people in the workplace. Maybe that's your role. Maybe your role is to care for people in a way that stretches you. That's unusual. Maybe, maybe it's getting to be part of an after-school program, caring for at-risk, at-risk kids, or helping with Meals on Wheels. What is that for you? This past week, a woman in our church met with me, (coughs) pardon me, because she feels like her role is to connect women in the workplace to one another and connect them to God. That's what she feels like her role is in God's mission. She was looking to me then. We had lunch because she wanted uh, some guidance. She wanted me to also connect her to five or six other women who might want to join her in this mission from the start. God doesn't require more than what he's asked of her because mission's a team effort. And so she walked away saying, you know what, Ryan, I've done my part. I've done what God's asked of me. Now he'll do his. That's right. That's right. God doesn't ask you to save the 7,000. He just asks you to play a role in his mission. And sometimes that's the very way he cares for us and gets us out of the funk in our lives. Finally, God cares for Elijah by giving him a partner. Look at verses 19 through 21. So as we we kind of escalate that hill, we've seen how God has cared for Elijah just through basic necessities, food and water and rest. He cares for Elijah by pursuing him, by knocking on the door of his heart, reminding him he loves him, he cares for him. He cares for Elijah by breaking The last part of that fucking say, okay, Elijah, now it's time. You're ready. Go get on a mission. You may not ever think you're ready, but you are. And finally, God cares for Elijah by giving him a partner. Verses 19 through 21. So Elijah departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen right in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him. He cast his cloak upon him. And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and he sacrificed them. They sacrificed them and they boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and he went after Elijah and assisted him. Remember previously, And if you've read more of Elijah's story, you know this also. Elijah had been doing mission alone. He'd been doing what God asked him all alone. And so as Elijah emerges from this valley, it's as if God is saying, okay, you're out of your funk, you're out of this valley. Don't now go and try to do God's mission again by yourself. Right? I'm going to give you a partner who can shoulder this burden with you. Who can walk through life with you. This is important here. Elijah takes the initiative, right? He passes by. He casts his cloak upon Elisha as a way of saying, okay, I've chosen you. I, I, I want you to do this with me. God gives us partners to shoulder a burden. That's why we have things like community groups. People to pray for us, to encourage us, to suffer with us, to rejoice for us, even assist us, because the mission God's called us to is really hard. We are then without excuse, aren't we? You might feel at times, guys, like, man, I don't have a friend. I don't feel like I have anyone to relate to me. But you always have partners. So don't wait for God to assign to you the perfect partners. Go out and find them. That's part of God's care for you. He's saying, I've given you the church. I've given you partners for this mission to make disciples of all nations. I've given you these partners to to glorify me through your life able to walk through life with you. I've given them. Or without excuse, they're right here in front of you. So go and find them because it's part of God's care for you. One of the things I love about our passage is that it ends where it began, with food. Gloriously and lovingly with food. Good food. Remember God's initial care for us when despondent is providing basic necessities, rest, water, and food. A cake, doesn't sound so good when you read this? A cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Mmm, right? Consider now how Elijah and Elisha now bless others. Look at that in verse 21. They took the yoke of oxen, they sacrificed them, they boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen, they gave it to the people, and they ate. God is faithful to care for us all the way out of caves and valleys in our lives. He gets us partnering with others on mission. And he does so because he means for us to go and care likewise for other people. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are loved to love others. We are cared for that we might extend his care to others. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for all the ways that you care for us. Maybe we've never seen that care before in our lives. Maybe even now we haven't recognized food on the table. The mattress we're going to sleep on tonight as a wonderful provision from you, as a wonderful way that you've said you want to love us and care for us. Father, I pray especially this morning for those who are feeling like they're in a funk, who are feeling down and despondent. Father, I pray that you would help those of us here, see your care for us. To see that you love us. To see ways that you're providing through us the basic necessities of life. Pursuing our hearts. Knocking on the door of our hearts, Lord, and trying to get our attention. The ways you're challenging us to look outside ourselves maybe and get on mission and find a partner to do life with. Father, I pray for those of us who may need to help someone they know. A friend or a neighbor. Father, help us hold out the story of Elijah, a story of your great care for us, because it's our story too. You have cared for us so deeply through Jesus Christ. We thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.